0: It's Friday, November 20th, and this is the COVID pod with Ashish Shah. I'm Colleen Cronin, editor-in-chief of the Brown Daily Herald, and I'm here with my colleagues from the science and research desk who will introduce themselves um, to get started on today's episode. Hi, I'm Kate Ryan, and I'm a senior science and research editor at The Herald. And I'm Rahma Ibrahim, and I'm a science and research senior staff writer. On today's bonus episode, Dr. Shaw, who's a public health expert and dean of the School of Public Health, will talk about what students should consider when deciding if they want to go home for Thanksgiving over the upcoming break, and what precautions they could take if they're deciding to go home. Dr. Shaw also talks about some new developments with COVID-19 vaccines, um, and it's a great episode, so listen in, and if you have any questions, let us know.
1: Before we dive into our questions about Thanksgiving and the holidays, we wanted to ask um, if you could sort of reflect on the experience of testifying yesterday in front of the Senate Homeland Committee on hydroxychloroquine.
2: Sure, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I've testified in front of Congress a lot uh, in the past and, and certainly in, during this pandemic, uh, probably maybe close to a half a dozen times. Um, this one was very unusual. And it was unusual because, like, obviously we have a lot of very complex pressing issues facing us in the pandemic. Whether to use hydroxychloroquine is not one of them. Um, There has now been just so much work, so much data that shows that it really just doesn't make much of a difference. And while this might have been an interesting conversation in April or May when the evidence was still out, um, at this point it's really hard to understand why this happened. And, And the funny part about it was The other times I have testified, like, you know, I know the other experts, sometimes we disagree on things, but we begin with the same book of facts, and then we tend to disagree on analysis. In this, like, we didn't even begin with the same book of facts. Like, the other experts um, had these very strongly held beliefs, largely based on anecdote. You know, I would say things like, well, in a randomized trial, like, didn't show any impact. And they said, well, I've taken care of 100 people, and I've given it to them, and they all did well. And and what it was, was in my mind, what it was, um, was it wasn't about hydroxychloroquine, though I do think part of the motivation was we are going into a, such a bad time of the pandemic and people are always looking for silver bullets. And so this was a silver bullet that had been debunked, but now was trying to sort of being brought back up. But there was a broader point. And the broader point was, how do we know what we know? How do we generate knowledge? Um, and who are the arbiters of knowledge? And in some ways, this hearing felt like an attack, uh, and a very kind of clear one on the scientific process as though kind of modern medicine you know, uh, uh, practices it, right? Like one of their witnesses kept basically saying randomized trials are unnecessary now. Uh, and, and I thought like we have moved the whole like the reason we're so successful, so much more successful with medicine than we were a generation ago is because we've moved to randomized trials. Like we actually have figured out how to learn new stuff. And these people really wanted to go backwards and talk much more about personal experience and observational data. It was very bizarre. And I I felt like uh, I needed to be a part of it to sort of push back. But uh, that's not the conversation I wanted to be having yesterday.
0: Talking about sort of... um... Looking at the signs of things, I got a news alert this morning that Pfizer might be um, seeking emergency authorization today. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit and what that actually means.
2: Yeah. So there are two parts of it that are, are worth understanding. So, first of all, um, not surprised. We were expecting something today or Monday. Um in general, uh, with the Food and Drug Administration, there is a, the full approval that you can go for where you have a complete set of data on a clinical trial, you go to the FDA and they evaluate it and they give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Or in the setting of an emergency, you can ask for what's called an emergency use authorization. And the bar for an EUA is lower, And um, but the idea is, and I actually t- I talked about this yesterday in my in the hearing, the bar is lower, but it's not zero, you, you, you still have to have a reasonable amount of evidence, you still have to show that there's more harm than good. And you have to commit to collecting more data so they can go back and reevaluate the EUA to see if you need if you should get full approval or not. And um, I actually think, you know, I've been a little bit skeptical about the EUA process for vaccines. But as I have sort of seen data coming in, I think at this point, given how bad the pandemic is. Uh, it's not at all unreasonable to uh, to authorize an emergency use of this vaccine. And it's not, and that doesn't mean that we don't have enough data or it's not safe. I actually do think that when the FDA evaluates this, they will find the vaccine to be safe and effective. The fact that it'll be an EUA and not a full approval will really mean that we have to continue collecting data and continue looking at the um, uh, things. And the only last point I'll make on this, uh, Colleen, is that I think it, the timeline at this point is probably... Two to three weeks is what I'm guessing. People are saying mid-December. I suspect it might be faster than that. There's such an urgency uh, that I suspect FDA will authorize emergency use in the next two, three weeks. They just have to look at all the data and then make it, make some determinations.
0: Is there any situation where you think they will not get the authorization? I mean, again, I
2: haven't seen the data, right? I've just seen the press releases. Uh, but in general, I don't tend to trust uh, press releases, but in this context... The stakes are so high that the idea that Pfizer would have misrepresented things in the press release, I just don't buy it. Uh, I think everybody's being extra careful. So I suspect that the full data will be very consistent with what's been in the press release. And therefore, I suspect that the FDA will authorize uh, emergency use. Um, The cost of not doing so is way too high and in terms of delays. And obviously, if the safety or efficacy data isn't there, then they shouldn't authorize it. And, and I suspect they won't. Um, but I, my guess is that the data are there and, and they're going to authorize it.
1: And on the topic of Pfizer, we also heard this week that they chose Rhode Island as one of the four states for their pilot vaccine delivery program. Um, what does that really mean for the state? And what will that look like going forward?
2: Yeah, it's a very good question, and we're starting to hear a little bit more about distribution from the federal government. Um, Pfizer is one of the major vaccines that has not taken uh, Operation Warp Speed money, and so they really are developing their own distribution. And as we've discussed before, uh, their vaccine needs to be stored at minus 96 degrees Fahrenheit. And so, as you might imagine, it's complicated, and not every place can handle it. And so part of their distribution planning has been to pick a few states and work with those states to get the vaccines out uh, quickly once it's authorized. And the part that I'm a little less clear about is what they're saying is, well, it doesn't mean that these states will get it first. And I think, well, what is, what, what do you mean it doesn't mean that? I would have thought that that's what it would mean. Um, but certainly my sense is once it's authorized, I can imagine Pfizer vaccines going to these four states uh, earlier. And, and my guess is that these states, like, and the Pfizer vaccine will go first to, they'll come to the state frozen, and then they'll go to the healthcare facilities so for healthcare workers. And so if you're a healthcare worker in, in Rhode Island, my sense is you're probably going to be among the first to get uh, vaccinated. But, but, you know, a lot of details we don't know yet. But I'm, but I'm thrilled. Like, it, we should be on the vanguard. We should be doing this. And Governor Raimondo has been really, I think, terrific on being on the forefront on vaccines.
0: Now sort of shifting and talking more about Thanksgiving. Um, We, so for the past two weeks, we've been talking about cases rising across the country um, and especially now with Thanksgiving coming up next week um, and people traveling home, students traveling home from universities um, across the country and people traveling home perhaps uh, to visit family. Um, We're wondering how do you think that's gonna impact the change in the number of cases?
2: So there's been a lot about travel, and and CDC came out yesterday and really basically told people not to if they can avoid it. And I think that was right. And uh, I still think people will do some traveling. I do expect that it will lead to another spike in cases. You know, we've seen this pretty much every single time. We saw it on Memorial Day, July 4th, Labor Day. Um, After every holiday, you see a spike in cases. And it's a reminder that a lot of transmission is happening within households as people get together. Um, so I expect that. I think that's going to be a real problem given how bad things already are. So it's a spike on top, of a, uh, on top of a kind of baseline that's really rising quickly and is very high. And then obviously, we all have to think about what we can do to reduce it. And for me, like, it's a no-brainer that like, families should not be getting together. I usually get together with my extended family, sometimes my, sometimes my in-laws, sometimes my parents. Um, we're not doing any of that this year. We're going like, to have a little um, you know, little nuclear family Thanksgiving. And, and what we may do, which is we've been talking to some friends, is we may, go for, like, we may get together with some friends uh, outside and like, go for a walk with another family. And I think that's pretty safe, right? Um, there is a bigger question of how do we help college students get home safely. And, uh, and the short answer is there's no super easy way. There's a lot we can do to reduce risk. And uh, so if, if it would be helpful, maybe we can just talk about that. Um, my general feeling is people should get tested before they go home, and they should get tested as close to ho- going home as possible. Uh, and then when you're home, and it depends a little bit on how you're traveling, like if you're driving three hours in a car by yourself, then that travel was, pr- you know, pretty low risk. If you're flying internationally and doing two stopovers, like that's a bit more risky. I still don't think flying and the travel thing itself is super high risk, as long as you're wearing a mask the whole time. Um, but obviously, it is a little bit more high risk, or it should just say it's a little higher risk. Um, and then it's about really being careful at home, because what you don't want to do is you could, you know, you could that uh, picks up, picked up something and then. Uh, Spread it, and so what does that mean? Being really careful at home, I I think certainly for the, you know, so look, the official answer would be when you get home, you should do a two week quarantine in your own room. That's gonna be pretty tough for a lot of people. Um, I certainly think that, uh, and and a lot of states are moving towards. So for instance, California is considering, I it's California, some state is considering. I I don't know if it's California, um, the kind of quarantine idea of like seven days plus a negative test afterwards. So if you can get a test at home, that would make a big difference. Um, I also just think uh, if you can really try for the first seven to 10 days to be more careful where, I know it's not super exciting, but like wear a mask around the house if you can. Try to avoid spending a ton of time with your, and then after that, like you can go back to are now, you know, you become part of the household and then you can go back to being normal. Uh, but there is that week to 10 day transition period that I remain a little bit worried about. I don't think it's super high risk if you've tested negative and then gone home right after. Uh, But to the extent that people can really try their best to minimize things in that first seven to 10 days when they're home. Uh, There is no simple way out of it. I mean, obviously the the safest would be you go home, you go to your room and you stay there for 14 days. But my guess is that's pretty unrealistic for most people. So it's all about risk mitigation.
1: As students at Brown, we've had access to consistent like a robust testing infrastructure ever since we started school in September and now we're all probably going back more or less to places that don't have that same consistent testing available to us. Um, so how do you think students should think about adjusting their like pandemic mindset, I guess? Not that I think students have been unsafe because of the testing, but we do have that assurance that we can get a test whenever we really need it. So.
2: Yeah, this is going to be a bit of a challenge. I mean, it's interesting because a lot of the, one of the questions about whether it was safe to bring students back to campus, I often made the case that it was safe and, in fact, potentially even safer because there were things we could do on campus that people weren't going to get access to. Uh, almost nobody is getting access to twice a week testing if you're not on, on a college campus, right? So, um, what I would say to folks is oh, so, actually, two things. First is I do think testing will become more available as we go later into December and January. So it may be that, depending on where people go, that there may be some amount of of testing that is available. I doubt anybody's gonna be able to get twice a week um, asymptomatic testing uh, when you're home. I, I mean, again, I wish we could, but we just haven't built that kind of infrastructure. And so it does mean being that much more careful because we know so much of the spread is asymptomatic. And uh, and so if you're at home and you're spending time with your friends and uh, if you're spending time with your friends and indoors and not wearing a mask, you could be spreading the virus and you're not going to pick it up and you're not going to be able to get tested and you're going to give it to your family. Uh, and so particularly right now, I'm worried my advice and like relatively strong advice to people is over the next two months, like just do as little as you can get away with. Uh, It's such a bad time. We're like, we have two things happening at the same time. Uh, We're in the absolute worst phase of the pandemic, things are gonna be horrible for two months. And yet, like we can see the light, and the light is so bright. And just like, so there's an element of, if you can avoid, I know, like, it's all socially isolating and tough. But if you can really avoid things for two months, it would make an enormous difference.
0: I think an, another, not necessarily a question, but I think, um, you know, this week we saw that Brown shifted away from in-person classes, which is a lot less drastic of a, of a thing to do than some colleges have just shut down in the last couple weeks at the very end. Um, I'm curious what you think about that. And if, um, you know, Brown is letting kids stay, do you think that that's the right choice? And are you maybe more concerned about some other schools that are going to be sending kids back?
2: Yeah, one of the things I've really liked about Brown, and obviously I'm biased because both I am here and B, I actually get to influence some of this, is I've always believed that you have to see this as a dimmer switch and not an on-off switch in terms of controls. And so we've clearly seen the last few weeks cases going up a lot in Rhode Island. And then in the last 10 days, we saw cases going up a little at, at Brown. Not a lot, no big spikes, but a little. And so the discussion, and ultimately, this was a decision made by President Paxson. But you know, the dis- the discussion that all of us had was, what do we do? Do we want to? Do we want to intervene at all? And and my entire advice to like every single policy person is, it's always better to overreact than underreact, because and and that was that was my advice to President Paxson and 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 not that to say please overreact but to say if you're on the fence do more and uh and she made what i thought was a really sensible decision which was there was nothing dramatic about what she did right she just said okay in the last week we're just going to dial it back a little bit and i think that's good i think that's helpful and then the like yeah we will allow people to just stay like i think a lot of universities and i get why they do it but i think they're really being irresponsible when they just shut down kind of abruptly and they tell people to go home. Because, I mean, for some people that might be easy, you live two hours away and get in the car, but like for a lot of people it's a real challenge. And then all the risks we've talked about, about going home uh, come into the forefront. So I've always said that if you're gonna um, bring students onto campus, you are responsible for getting them home safely. And uh, and you can't take the approach of out of sight, out of mind. Like, not my problem anymore. You guys figure it out. That's irresponsible, right? It's not what we're supposed to do as universities. And uh, and I feel like many universities are doing that. Uh, obviously, Brown is not. And uh, I would be very upset if it was. But that's not what we're doing.
0: Thank you so much for all that good advice. I think that will really help people in thinking about what their plans are going forward in the next, oh, gosh, Thanksgiving is less than a week away. I was wondering if there was any good news that you read about this week besides, or it could be vaccine related, could be therapeutic related, could be anything.
2: You know, I'll tell you in Rhode Island and and across the country, we are starting, so we talked a little bit about testing. We're starting to see a lot more testing come online. I think we'll be able to double the number of tests Rhode Island is doing in the next few weeks. I think that's gonna help a lot. And overall, uh, I, really do see our ability to have a more, I don't want to call it a normal spring, but but a better spring, um kind of coming into sharper relief, because it's not just vaccines. I'm just becoming more and more optimistic about what we're going to be able to do on testing. And just as testing got us, you know, two, two and a half, two and a half months of really good in-person experiences, two months uh, at Brown, I think that's going to become much more widely available. And uh, so I, I just, I get more and more optimistic about 2021 uh, every day. And and that's what makes it that much more compelling, that we just hunker down for two months. We're not talking about hunkering for a year, right? We're just saying two months. And it's already been a long time. This pandemic is, has uh, strained all of us. But if people can kind of do it for a couple of more months, it'll make an enormous difference.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Shah. We learn something new every time you talk, and oftentimes many new things. So thank you. And I don't know if there's anything else you want to add.
2: no. Just to say thank you and, and stay well. And I look forward to continuing to do this um, and, and keep people informed and engaged. And, and it's just been a pleasure uh, this semester doing this with you all. So thank you. Right. Be well. Enjoy Thanksgiving. Be safe. Bye-bye.
1: This podcast was produced by the Brown Daily Herald. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our website, browndailyherald.com. The music was created and composed by Katherine Beggs, a Brown University undergraduate student, and thanks for listening.